We're going to continue in our study of Galatians. We'll be in Galatians 4 today. Um, now, if we were going to look at, look back at, at what we've heard of Galatians, through Galatians so far, through Paul, I would say probably one of the biggest themes we can really look at and point back towards is the gospel. I mean, I mean, honestly, if you've not read or heard any of the sermons, he says gospel a lot, and he talks about the gospel a lot. In fact, he uses the word gospel in the, word of, or in the book of Galatians about 11 times, um, about exactly 11 times, and don't, I don't know where I got about. But he uses the word gospel 11 times, and the only other book he actually talks about and says the word gospel this much in is actually Romans, and Romans is more than twice as long as Galatians. I mean, Galatians is six chapters, very short, all of maybe three or four pages in your Bible. Um, so you can see that, that obviously the gospel is very, very, very important to Paul as we go through this. And I'm sure you, like myself, as you continue to go through Galatians, have felt somewhat of the repetition. Um, if, you, if you read through the first three, going into the fourth chapter of Galatians, you feel like Paul is reiterating himself over and over and over and over again. And, and, and it, almost, it almost gets monotonous. I mean, it's, it's the law and the gospel, and the law and the gospel, and the law and the gospel. Um, somewhat like Paul has short-term memory loss and, and doesn't remember that he just wrote about it a few words ago. But the truth is here that Paul really isn't repeating himself just for the heck of it, and, and it's not because he has... Um, mental issues, but because we as humans have somewhat of mental issues, <laughs> uh, we tend to forget things a lot. Uh, the amount of information in this society and culture right now that we are just inundated with, um, it's no wonder that we tend to forget stuff. Uh, and really, honestly, when it comes down to it, when it comes to scripture and things like that, we're much worse about forgetting it than we are even so much our schedule. <clears throat> I mean, uh, Think about how, think about the basics, honestly. So, uh, do you remember what you had for dinner last night? Because I, I, I can, but it's solely because I had Chick-fil-A, and Chick-fil-A is ridiculously awesome. So, I'm not sure I could forget that anyways. But, typically, if I look back, like even two days ago, I, I couldn't tell you what I had for dinner. I have no clue. Um, how many of you remember all of your family's birth dates? I don't. I have them all on a calendar because I will forget them. Um, my brother, who is not here today, so he's not here to enjoy this joke, forgets what day of the week it is a lot of times. I'm not really sure I get to that point, but um, I, mean, I mean, lo and behold, he forgets that it's Wednesday a lot. So um, that's just John, though, and he's not here to enjoy that. So well, you know, we'll just laugh at his expense. But, um, <laughs> but in all honesty, we, we really do tend to forget things. And I mean, uh, if you've been in any of the community groups, and I'll take an aside here and say, if you're not in a community group, please be in one. They're awesome, um, life-changing, great place to meet people, great community. Um, so I, I would totally recommend one. But if you've been in any of the community groups, um, we've been memorizing Galatians as we go through it. And think about how hard it is really just to memorize a few verses of Galatians as we continue to go through it. I mean, let alone a day of the week, the very words of God that he gave to us. We can't remember week to week what we memorized the week before. <clears throat> so when Paul here is going through Galatians and talking about the gospel and the law and the law and the gospel, and he says it in a whole bunch of different ways, it's not because he just feels like talking about it a whole bunch, but because it's utterly important. Actually, the most important thing in the world is the gospel, and we forget a lot all the time, and we need reminding. And so when Paul is doing this, 
know that it's not monotony, but find it to be something important. Um, and I, I think really Paul is taking a, uh, just a, a leaf out of his Jewish culture, out of, of life out of the uh, Jewish culture. Because in, in Deuteronomy 6, uh, in verse 4, <clears throat> this is a command that, that God gave the Israelites. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. <clears throat> the most important words, uh, th- these are something that they, they reiterated to themselves. They said every single day to themselves. They prayed this prayer. It was something for them to remember. And, and this is why. And he says, And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your front gates. I mean, th- this right here was, this was one of the most, in fact, the most important commandment that God ever gave. Jesus says later that there's two things really to follow the whole of the law and it's love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this was, this was big. And God says, not only do I want you to say it every day, but I want you to teach your children it every day. I want you to remember it when you wake up, when you go to bed, when you walk out your door, because you're going to have it on your doorpost, when you walk out of your gate to your, or your garage, so to say, to your car, it's going to be there. It's going to be as frontlets between your eyes. He wants to get it tattooed on your hand. I'm not really saying you should do that. But, um, I mean, I mean, in all honesty, you see here that God is commanding them to do this, and it's not just because it's important, but because we forget. I mean, so Paul here, when he's talking about the law and the gospel, it's just not a repetition, but, but eternal life that, that hangs in the balance. That our life with God or eternal torment in hell is really what's in the balance here. So as we get into this today, as we, we look at this, and as you continue to go through Galatians, remember that Paul is not repeating himself because he just feels like it, but because this is the most important thing you could ever, ever, ever come to know and learn. It's the gospel. <clears throat> so we're going to look at our text today. Uh, Romans 4, Romans, <laughs> man, uh, Galatians 4, 8 through 11 is where we're going to be at. Um, and we'll start there. And this is what Paul says. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Now as we look at the text, we see Paul here begin to vent some frustration, um, some, some just absolute irritation at the, the Galatians for wanting to, as he say, turn back again to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Now, and we'll see this more next week, but I think it's important to mention here, Paul here isn't just going off on some emotional rant, when he, emotionless rant, I should say. He is not detached from the situation. He is not in any way just yelling at them for the sake of yelling at them. What he is doing here is out of love and care and concern and, and, and pastoral just love for his, his people and for the people of God. That when, when Paul here is talking to the Galatians, what he is doing is showing his love and care and concern for them. I mean, he helped start this church. He has pastored this church. He has led this church. He has spent countless hours, he says. I mean, 
He feels like he's labored over them in vain. He labored. I mean, this wasn't some easy work. He, he labored over this. He put in time preaching. He put in time taking counseling and care for the people of this church. So when he comes to these people and is, and is very frustrated with them, it's not a frustration built out of nothingness, but out of love and care and concern for the Galatians. And that's, that's where we see him at today. And he's afraid that he has labored over them all this time in vain. We're going to look at, at verse 8, and he says um, in, in verse 8, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now here in, in the first verses, we're going to see already that Paul is calling them to remember something. He, he's telling them to remember formerly where you were. Remember where you came from. He wants them to think back and remember where they were at at one point in time when they worshipped these idols, these, these not gods, these things that are by nature not gods that they were enslaved to. Now, it wasn't some, I don't want you guys to feel like it was just some random thing. I mean, Paul here gives significant, great significance to these beings. I mean, they're spiritual beings that have power that they were enslaved to. So, so know that they, they really were enslaved to some powerful being here. But he wants them to remember their past, remember where they came from. And, and I know today in our culture, lots of times, as you continue to grow and you continue to change, lots of times you hear, don't remember your past. Forget the past. Forget what happened back there. Forget anything bad ever happened. You know, that's not who I am today. You know, that, that was in the past. And I would say that's exactly why you need to remember the past. Because in remembering our past sins, we're reminded of God's present grace. That where you were before is very important. And it's not important to dwell on because if you dwell on it and find condemnation in it and, and just and feel plagued down and weighted down by the weight of your sins from the past, that, that's not why Paul wants you to remember the past. The point of looking back and seeing where you were is so you can see where you are today. You can remember that at one point in time, you lived a life of lawlessness, that you did whatever you wanted, you had no care and concern for God, you had no love for God, you had no love for other people, you cared about yourself. I mean, whatever it was, that there was a point in time where we were all not following God. And the, the importance is to look there and look at yourself now. I mean, it's, it's a pretty crazy thing if you even think back just a year ago. I mean, I, I cannot even begin to grasp the amount of work that God has done in my life in the last six months or what he's going to do in the next six months. But the truth of the matter is, is that we can't forget the past. We need to look back on the past so that we can recognize God's present grace in our lives. And that's what Paul is doing here. And he does this over and over again in his books. Don't think this is something he just does here. I mean, um, just for instance, and this is, this is quoting Paul, he talks about that you were once dead. Remember that you were once dead but Christ has now made you alive. That you were once far off, but Christ has brought you near. Paul continually throughout his letters always wants you to remember where you came from and then remember and look at where now Christ has brought you. And I think that that's really where he brings them to. And his frustration is that not only do they remember where they came from, but look at that they're going right back to it again now. He says in, in verse 9, um, uh, how can you turn back again 
to the weak and, wor- weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. I mean, he is absolutely frustrated that they came from something that was, they see their lawlessness. They can remember that. They can remember when Christ came into their life and they're headed right back to this, this weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. He's frustrated at them and he cares for them deeply because they're headed right back to it. Now, I think it's important here that as we look at verse 9 and we look at the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, that little phrase right there, as you guys, I'm sure if you look across the room and all your guys' different translations, that's actually translated very differently. (laughs) Um, In fact, the majority of commentators and people that talk about this little phrase right here, the majority of them all have a different opinion on what that really means or what it really says. Um, and because I'm not good at dissecting all those things, um, and, and I don't think that would be worthwhile for us here, I, I think what's important here as we look at this <clears throat> principle of where they were turning back to, it's important to understand really just the main point of what he was trying to get back to. Because, see, the Galatians, where they came from, uh, the culture they lived in in that day was a Greek-Roman culture. That they lived in a time when pagan idolatry and pagan worship and and what we come, what we know and think of when we think back to um, the Greek gods and worshiping and sacrificing to those things. That was the culture in the day they, they lived in. And when he talks about the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, he's not in a sense bashing them or condemning them to the extent of making fun of them. He, what he is doing here is really talking about the fact that what they worshipped was, was many base elements. So, for instance, when you think of things like fire and water and earth and air and things like that, in that day and age and in that culture, they would take, take each one of those principles to be a specific god. So there was a god of fire and there was a god of air and a god of earth and a god of water, and they worshipped these things. That, that is what they gave their worship to. So there was um, <clears throat> Aphrodite, the god of love, goddess of love and beauty. Um, There was Ares, the god of war. Uh, Poseidon, the god of the sea. So you would have these businessmen who would go in and and worship and sacrifice and and practice their religion to worship these, uh, the the god of of luck or of finance so that their business would do better. Or you would have the sailors who would go and sacrifice and do these things to worship the god of the sea so that their travels would be safe, or the god of agriculture so that the farmers would grow crops. They, they would do these things. And when Paul here is talking about that, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, this is really the main point he is trying to get at. That how can you turn back again to these, this idolatrous worship that you were once a part of, this pagan worship? This is where you came from. I, I, a lot of people think that he is in some way, our last section that we looked at last week that, that Seth preached on about our identity in Christ is based solely out of Christ. He's not being self-righteous. He's not being uh, arrogant in the sense that your religion is stupid, your religion is dumb, I'm making fun of you. How could, how, how could you do something that stupid? He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's, he's asking them, how can you turn back again to idolatry? I mean, really, that's where his, his frustration is built out of. How can you turn back again to worshiping these, these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And, and now we're, as we, but I passed over it, um, and you really won't see this, but he does something really incredible here, because when he goes into verse 10, he reveals something that is rather astounding about the law. Because when you get into verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. 
when he's talking about that, he's talking about Jewish tradition and Jewish law, that, you know, they're turning back, they're, they're, they're going into this Jewish tradition. I mean, that's, that makes sense with what we've understood, right? As we've gone through Galatians, we understand that Paul came in, preached Christ crucified. He preached the gospel. These people accepted the gospel, fell at the knees of Jesus. Then these Judaizers came in after he left, and they preached that Christ wasn't enough, Christ's righteousness wasn't enough, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross wasn't enough. What you need is also to follow the true traditions of the Jews, the law. You needed the law as well to really be holy, to really be saved, to really truly be righteous and holy. You needed the law as well. And so when, when Paul here says, you know, they've, they've turned to observe days and months and seasons and years, it makes sense in understanding that Paul's frustrated with them because they're going back to legalism. But if you go right back to verse 9, it really, it, it almost doesn't fit because he's just talked about how they're going back again to their pagan worship, not to following the law, right? Excuse me. He is, he's frustrated with them for going back to pagan worship. That's what he says, right? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, talking about idolatry worship. But then he goes into verse 10 saying that they're following days and seasons and months and years of Jewish tradition, the law. And here is where something quite uh, large happens, and and we kind of have to make um, a connection between the law of God and the demonic, honestly. Um. When you turn, when you think of uh, the demonic or idolatry or Satan and things like that, really all that they're trying to do and what they do is take glory from God. That all they're really trying to do is the glory that's due God, the creator of this universe, God our Savior and our, and our Lord, all they are really trying to do in idolatry and, and what they do is sway your, the glory, do his name, to something else, whether it be ourselves, themselves, the idol itself whatever. And so when the Galatians went and sacrificed to these idols and to these weak and worthless elementary principles, what they were doing is saying that they had control, they had the power, and so we're going to give you the glory. You receive the glory for what you have done, for what you have controlled, for what you have given us. You receive the glory and not God. And the truth of the matter is, is that when we turn to the law for our righteousness, when we turn to the law for our salvation, when we turn to our own works to make us something more than we are, we're giving glory to a created thing rather than the creator God. That when we turn to the law, Paul is saying, it is the exact same thing as worshiping idols, demons, spirits, whatever you want to call them. But but following the law for your salvation is the exact same thing as becoming enslaved to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the law. Those non-gods, those demonic things that following the law holds the exact same sway as, as demon worship. Now, I'm pretty sure the Jews at the time would have been probably pretty angry to hear something like that. I mean, I'm sure you and I would hear everything that we're ever about. Holds pretty much as much sway um, towards God as demons do. Um, but that's really what Paul wants to point out and is trying to say here. That just because you're going to the law does not mean it's any different than going back to pagan worship. And my fear is, and in hearing this and looking at this, is that you and I here today in the culture and the day and age we live in, is we're going to come under what C.S. Lewis described as chronological snobbery. Um, 
So when you think of um, idol worship and you think of, you know, the, the pagan worship and sacrifice and religion and things like that, you think of, I know I do many times, think of um, voodoo or some kind of um, tribe out in the jungle, out in Africa that you'll never see, or um, that is just part of some uncivilized people that has never really known what it means to be in a, in a place that's advanced like we are. They just don't get it. I mean, we drive cars, and we go to work, and we have really nice clothes, and we don't wear loincloths around, and, you know, we have bathrooms and things like that. This isn't anything like us. And C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery, that we are in some way better or better off than those people because they worshipped something crazy. There's no way we would do that in our advanced culture and who we are today and where we live and what we do. But the truth is, is that, we do. In fact, John Calvin, uh, I didn't, I, honestly, I didn't even think about this, but this is a guy I'm wearing on my shirt. John Calvin um, called our hearts, the human heart, a, a human or an idol factory. That the human heart was an idol factory. That it was constantly, continually, always making idols out of something, someone, whatever it was. Now remember, idols are just anything that takes glory from God. You're giving glory to something else rather than God for what it does. And so our heart always, without Christ, finds something to give glory to rather than Jesus. That in the fall, that was broken in us. God created us for worship. Our heart was bent to give glory to something and to worship something. And when the fall came, sin broke that. And now we find anything and everything to worship rather than God. In fact, Paul was, was fairly privy to this himself um, in speaking of, let's see if I can find it. Uh, in Romans 1, 22, this is what he says. And he's speaking of all mankind here. He says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of, lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You and I are no different than those people back then. That the same problem that Paul faced with the Galatians is the same problem we face today in its idolatry. Really at its root and its core, what the problem is is that we tend to become enslaved to things other than Christ. That we look to other things for our satisfaction and our joy to give glory to rather than Jesus. And really, honestly, that is, that is the main point Paul is pointing at here. And you and I are, are faced with the exact same trouble that the Galatians were faced with, with Paul. And I know a lot of us probably, it, it's a difficult thing to find idols in our own life sometimes. Um, and I know in community group, we asked a few questions last week um, that were very good. And I'm just going to ask them, and maybe you can ponder over these things. And I'll give a couple examples as well. But... <clears throat> For instance, what, if you lost it, if it was gone forever, would make you feel like not ever living again? Or if you, um, it would give you no joy anymore. Your life would have no joy or, or pleasure in it anymore if that thing was gone. Maybe that's your wife or husband. What if they died? Is life not worth living anymore? Or maybe it's your job, or maybe it's money. Once those things are gone, it's... Does life have no meaning or purpose or joy anymore? 
Those are just difficult things to think about. But the truth is, is that all of us have idols in our life. Um, let me give another example. So, for instance, say you've been going to work every day for the last, I don't know, six months, and you've been working very, very, very hard to, to be a good worker, a good employee, that you are, you're coming in early, you're staying late, you're working overtime, you're, uh, I don't know, whatever that may look like for you. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that you're even doing it not so that you can get glory, but so that God will, because he has called you to this, that you are working as hard as you can to be a good worker to the glory of God. And six months in, you've been working on this huge project, and you get to the end, and you, you get there, and you bring it to your boss, and your boss looks at you and just tears it apart. Tells you all these things you've done wrong, just goes off on you. The minute that happens, what's the first thing in your mind and your heart? I very much doubt and I say this from experience, it is a godly attitude or character towards that person. <laughs> I doubt the last thing you want to do is go hug them or show them any kind of love or grace. In fact, the first thing you want to do is punch them in the face, more, more than likely. Anger, it's a serious ego killer, typically. And what I would say there is, is that in that moment, instead of showing humility and grace and mercy, in understanding that you are fallen and that you mess up and that sometimes you've got to do better, you act out and, and show worship to your idol of approval or your idol of power that in some way, shape, or form you had power over this thing or that you needed somebody to tell you you did a good job for it to actually have been a good job, for it to have actually been worthwhile. You needed somebody to tell you good job. Way to go. Give you a pat on the back. I mean, you can look at that in, in a lot of different instances, but that right there is an, is an idol of approval. You are looking for somebody to give you approval rather than God. And God says, you work for my glory and you do as much as you can to the best of your ability to my glory, and that brings me glory. Not whether or not you get a good job attaboy. Or how about this? How many of you, and, and myself included, we, we hear about churches that love Jesus or preaching Jesus, but they're growing or they're really big or they do things a little differently or their theology is a little bit different than ours, and you immediately condemn them and call them wrong. Or you immediately find them to be a church that isn't worthwhile, isn't really a good church. At that point in time, are you really worshiping Jesus, the Jesus they're worshiping, or are you worshiping your own theology, your church itself? I mean, those are, those are very, I know, blatant things in my own life at times. But it's just an example that we, we though we may not bow down to some little golden calf or some, I don't know, in the backwoods of a jungle, we're not like sacrificing children or whatever. The, the instance is, whatever it is, it's, it doesn't matter. The truth of the matter is, is that we're all worshiping something other than God, and that's what really matters. That we found something else to give glory to rather than God, and that's what really is the issue here. But the great thing about these verses is, is that Paul has not left them in just berating them for remembering where they came from and where they're heading and that it's the exact same place, but he's reminding them as well of what God did with them, what God has done for them and what God's going to do for them. Verse 9. Uh, this, is, oh, this is very good. So uh, 
I, I love this. Verse 9, right after he's gotten done saying where they were, remember where you came from, he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The whole basis for Paul's argument, the whole basis for Paul even doing any of this, is he says, you've done this, you're going to this, but don't you remember, wasn't God enough? Wasn't God coming to know you enough that you don't want to turn back to those things? And I know that myself, when I read this the first time, um, I kind of passed over it. I mean, you read this and you hear, You've come to know God, or rather be known by God. I mean, it's a very Christian thing to say or know. And so I agreed, because it was the Christian thing to do. So, yeah, right. They shouldn't have turned back to those idols, because God has known us, right? He saved us. So we shouldn't turn back to that. But the truth of the matter is, is that in that little tiny phrase is everything you need to live um, for God and turn from idolatry to other things. That within that verse, you can find everything you need for your life to find joy and satisfaction. As I, as I read this and as I continued to go over it and as I continued to really think about it, this verse just kept popping out that God has come to know me. He's come to know me. I mean, how sweet and beautiful is that? That the God of the universe, your creator, your savior, knows you. Uh, it, re- it reminded me of Psalm 8. Um, David, here he writes this, and he says, when I look at, at your heavens, the work of your fingers, fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This God who created the universe with his fingers, so says David. Hebrews says that the universe is upheld by the words of his mouth. <laughs> That's just insane to me. Like, to think that some reverberation of sound and breath that leaves the mouth of God upholds everything. That's just nuts. And he knows you. He knows you. He listens to you. He hears you. And the, cra- the, the crazy thing is, is that in these verses, the Greek here implies it's not just an intellectual or theoretical knowledge. God knew who you were. He created you. He knit you together in the womb, Psalm says. He knew who you were. Right here when Paul says this, that God came to know you, it is an experiential, it's an experiential knowledge. And it's a relational knowledge. Paul here, when he, when he changes his phrasing, because he starts out with, now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. When he changes his phrasing here, the point is, is not to remove the fact that we come to know God, because that is important. It's important that we, we think of him and we know him. But the primary, the primary thing in that whole sentence is that he has come to know us. And in fact, the Greek... Um, really implies that, that this is the most important thing and that this actually happened first. The point Paul here is trying to make is that your intellectual knowledge, your understanding of God, your work, your effort, your sweat, 
Whatever you have done had nothing to do with your salvation. Rather, it was that God came to know you and have a relationship with you. God chose to know you. It wasn't that you did something in your thinking to where all of a sudden God was like, oh, yes, I want to do something great for him. And it wasn't like the pagan gods back then where you could sacrifice and persuade them to do things for you. I mean, I'm sure many of you have taken Greek mythology classes where you see men and humans, it's, it's like a chessboard for them where you do these things so that they'll act out in these certain ways, that the gods will do something good for you and bad for somebody else. And that humans had in some way control over God. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that it isn't our knowledge and it isn't our, our understanding of God that changes things. It's the fact that God comes to know us. The truth of the matter is, is that at one point in time, you and I were following and worshiping things that were not God. They were not God's. We were enslaved to things that by nature were not God's. We followed the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world. We did. And we acted against God. We wanted nothing to do with him. And he sent his son, Jesus, to come down into this earth and to die and to take our sins so that we could have a relational knowledge of God, an experiential knowledge of God, that Jesus came down so that we could understand what it is like to have a relationship with God Almighty. That Jesus came down to be our mediator so that he could act between God and us so that we could have a relationship with our creator. I mean, really think about that. Paul isn't frustrated with him because he, he understands that those things have enticing the law and, and, and the gods of sex and, and love and money and all those things. They are enticing. He's not He's not mad at them or frustrated with them by any means because they're going back to those things because those things are enticing. But he's frustrated because Christ is that much more enticing. Does Jesus woo your heart to such an extent that you don't want to go back to those things? That's the question he's asking. That's what he wants to know. Do you love Jesus to such an extent that you are pulled from those things that you want to go back to, that you were following at one point in time that are still pulling your heart do you, do you want to go back to those things or does Jesus, does your relationship, does your knowledge of God mean so much more to you that you want to stick with that, that you want to love Jesus, that you want to have a relationship with him? That's the question Paul's asking. It is important for us to remember where we came from but it is most importantly to remember where we are because of Christ. And so, in, in understanding all of this, I want to, just as Paul was, was trying to give the, the Galatians something to hold on to, something to remember, something to think on, that really caused them to, to run back to God, to give them something to hold on to, to fight off those temptations and those things that, that, that have a, a sway on our heart. I, I keep thinking of uh, the uh, hymn, um, I'm not going to remember. Come thou fount. Uh, he keeps saying, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I mean, that's very true of us. We, we are prone to go back to where we were from and leave the God that loved us and that we love so much. 
And so in understanding all of this and in understanding that, that what Paul was doing, I would like to give you guys some stuff to, to think about, some things that maybe you guys can use to fight off these temptations, some promises to hold on to, to woo your heart back to Christ, to be enticed by Jesus, the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. The God of this universe who wants to experience you and have a relationship with you. And I, I want to give you these promises that, 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 that were bought by the blood of Jesus on the cross for us so that we could have something to remember and to think about. Something that we can put on our doorpost, something that we can write on our hands and put in the frontlets of our eyes, that we can teach our children things that we can remember when we wake up, things we can remember when we go to bed so that we might not forget to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And these are all from Galatians. Now I know, myself included, I've had a lot of problems finding some, it's, this book has been a lot more technical, um, very uh, rigorous to go through, and it's been difficult for some of us to find things to really grab onto, um, like we did in Philippians when we were going through that. But I, I hope to provide for you some things to really find some some good gems, so to say, within Galatians to, to see Jesus in. So, um, first of all, something that is really awesome to think about is we have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You and I have been crucified to this world, to the passions and the things of this world that we might pursue God because Christ now stands in our place if you accept him as your savior. We've been given grace and peace and deliverance. Galatians 1, 3 through 4 says, grace to you and peace. I know that's just a greeting, but he means it. He wants people to have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You and I can have grace and peace and deliverance because Jesus died on that cross and God wants you to have it and you can have it in him. Remember that. We are redeemed from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We no longer have a curse riding on our heads because we follow the law and we had nothing else to run to, but Christ took that for us so that we can have salvation and redemption from it. That's just so cool. Uh, we are sons and heirs of God, and we have been given the Spirit of God who lives in us. Uh, Seth read this verse last week, Galatians 4, 6 through 7, and, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All the promises that Paul talks about in Galatians, the promise that you get, the blessing that was to come to Abraham, you've been given that. You're the heir. If you're in Jesus, you, have, you are the heir to that promise. The promise is made to you. You're a son of God. He adopted you. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's just good. It's a good thing. You are known by God, uh, what we said today, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, we are set free from the law. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ set you free on the cross. You no longer have to follow the law to be righteous, because you can't. Jesus did it, so you can follow him and find righteousness. 
You don't have to be condemned anymore. You don't have to punish yourself. Christ took that all on the cross. You're free from the law. We are free from the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those things that plague us, those things that draw our hearts, those things that entice us, it was crucified with Jesus. We have power over temptation, power over sin. We no longer have to sin anymore. We can follow Jesus. We can run the other direction. He gave us a way out. It was through his cross. Finally, we're given the ability to to do good to others. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You and I could not do good to each other. We couldn't live in community with each other. We couldn't bless each other really, honestly, truly without Jesus. The community is only really community washed in the blood of Christ. That you and I living together, it's selfish desires and passions without Jesus. We're looking out for ourselves. It's a dog-eat-dog world without Jesus. That sounded really corny. Just saying. Jesus bought all those promises for you on the cross. You and I no longer have to live a life of condemnation and a life rigorous with the law. We don't have to turn back again to where we came from because Christ has now made us who we are. Now, if you don't know Jesus, we love you, but you're here. You're in idolatry. You're you're stuck here. And to get to Jesus, to get to where we are, to, to, there's no levels or anything, but to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God, you need Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus today, I beg you and I plead with you, he wants to know you, so come to know him. Believe on Jesus, have faith in Jesus. My encouragement to you guys this week is, remember your past sins, think back, but don't let them plague you because remember where Christ has now brought you. Remember those things he has bought with his son for you. Hold on to those things that you might not be prone to wonder away from the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for coming and dying. God, that we might know you and that we might have a relationship with you. God, not just so that we would know you with our, our heads, but that we would, we would know you, God, with our hearts. That we would get to experience a true relationship with you, God. Our hearts are prone to wonder. God, they are prone to go back to those things that, that entice us, God. We, as humans, God, as fallen people, our hearts are prone to worship things other than you. But we thank you, Jesus, for coming and destroying those things, God, that we might have a life free to worship you, to love you, to know you, to experience you, God. And we pray, God, that you continue to reveal to us idols in our life, things in our heart, God, that we need to to smash and destroy, God. We need to hold on to the promises, God, that you bought for us on the cross. That we can fight off the temptations that come, that we can fight off the things that, God, that just plague us so much. 
I pray that um, we are grateful and, and uh, thankful, God, for where you have brought us, God, that we don't find some way to find arrogance in that, that we don't find some way to boast in that, but we boast only in the fact and the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. That we only find true satisfaction in our, our real identity and what Jesus did for us on the cross. We love you so much, God, and I just pray for us this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray.